0: Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Well, hi there. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we have spent the last few weeks unpacking the First Amendment, and believe it or not, we still have a long way to go. I understand today we're going to touch on freedom of press, perhaps freedom of assembly, and freedom of association.
1: Well, that's where the First Amendment leads from here. We've already talked about establishment of religion, free exercise of religion. We pretty well exhausted free speech, and so we go from there to freedom of the press.
0: So where do we begin with freedom of the press?
1: Well, we might just begin by explaining why we think freedom of the press is an important right, even though a lot of us get pretty fed up with the mainstream or lamestream, as they sometimes call it, media today. We see a distinct bias among the media today. For example, there was a study by the Center for Public Integrity during the 2016 campaign that showed that. More than 96% of political donations from journalists went to Hillary Clinton. Less than 4% went to Trump. And bias is also shown in the fact that over four times as many members of the media identify themselves as Democrats rather than Republicans. And that probably the number that identify themselves as liberal rather than conservative would be even greater than that. I think a lot of us would say that wouldn't matter a whole lot to us if they'd just be objective in the way they'd portray things. In other words, you could be a liberal and still give an unbiased newscast where you simply give us the news, but the bias seems to be reflecting increasingly, and it's really on both sides. I mean, Fox News tends to be more aligned with my perspective than some of the others, but Fox News has definitely got a conservative bias, and Fox News is many times a conservative harangue, one that I usually agree with and applaud, but I certainly wouldn't call them objective. And just about all of the other networks are just as biased on the liberal side. And anyway, it's really hard today to find any National newscast. probably at the local level, it's a little better in many cases, but at the national level, it's pretty hard to find any newscast that isn't biased on one side or the other. If you want to just go and get plain, fair and balanced news, just the facts, ma'am, as Joe Friday used to say, there is hardly any place you can go to get that. And that's disappointing. It causes a lot of us to really resent the media, And yet, at the same time, I think we'd have to say that we're glad the media are there. And we wouldn't want a lack of media where there was no information, nor do we want a media that's simply a tool of the government. In fact, one of the benefits of having a news media is that when we see these journalists who are just eager for a story in which they can scam somebody or they can tear somebody apart, yellow journalists and the very worst, if they weren't there, we might just think how helpless we would be at the hands of the government. And think about judges, for example. You know, we don't usually allow courts to televise court cases. Media can't come in and film them in most cases That's really up to the discretion of the judge, and some judges in some cases do allow it, but usually not. But media can still be present in the courtroom. Courtrooms are open to the public. We're guaranteed in the Sixth Amendment a speedy and public trial. And you think about it, that's not really something most of us want very badly. Most of us would rather not have a trial where All of our dirty linen is aired for the whole public and our parents and our girlfriends and our second grade Sunday school teacher can be watching all this. And yet, it helps to make sure that the courts and the government in general stay clean and stay honest. A judge is less likely to behave in a corrupt and arbitrary way if he knows that sitting out there in his courtroom are a group of hungry journalists who are just eager to report that he's been abusive. And so a open and free press really does a lot to keep the public or to keep the government in line. And you might say, when we talk about our system that we talked about earlier, a system of checks and balances in government You might say that the press is like an additional check on government power. It helps keep government honest, and it helps keep government from becoming abusive and oppressive and tyrannical. So despite our frustration with the press, I think probably most of us would say that we're glad we have a free press here in America. Just out of of curiosity, Colonel...
0: Uh, historically, has the press always had a bias? In other words, did the founding generation, uh, did they also struggle with frustration uh, of the press being slanted one way or the other?
1: Well, they did, and yet I'm not sure entirely which way the press was biased, but it seems like each administration felt that the press was unfair to it. And, for example, we have, during the John Adams administration, Adams becomes president and. 1797 and serves until 1801 and under his administration he was concerned about media criticism of him and thought that that could be detrimental to national security and despite the fact that we had a first amendment that guaranteed freedom of the press he got congress to pass what we call the alien and sedition acts and well those had some legitimate purposes as well they also made criticism of government officials a criminal offense, and people were sometimes, media people were sometimes jailed simply for having criticized, or maybe we should say criticized in a contemptuous way, the, the authorities of government. One of the strongest criti- critics of these Alien and Sedition Act was the vice president under Adams, Thomas Jefferson, who was also for part of his life, a good friend of Adams, and later in his life, a good friend of Adams. But in the late 1700s and the early 1800s, they became enemies. And of course, Jefferson ran against Adams in 1800 and defeated him and became president. But Jefferson was a very strong critic of these alien and sedition acts. But when Jefferson became president, some of the Federalists, the old Adams supporters, were saying Jefferson was using the same acts against his opponents. And so, yes, there probably always has been a feeling of bias, but polls that I have seen suggest that back in the 40s, 50s, and so on, the general perception of the public was that the media is pretty much in the middle. And conservatives generally thought the media was too liberal, the liberals generally thought the media was too conservative. But as time has progressed into the 60s, 70s, and 80s, now the 60s in particular, the media is very hostile to very Goldwater. But as we move into the 70s, there in the 70s, we start to find a more distinctive liberal bias and that has increased. And it has increased so much that today, no matter what network you turn to. It it would almost seem like if you switch from CNN to Fox, they're talking about two different events, they're talking about two different countries, two different worlds. It seems like one channel is propaganda for the Republican Party, mostly, not always. And the other is mostly, not always, propaganda for the Democrats. And we see the same thing in the entertainment industry. The interesting thing is, in the entertainment industry, the one exception seems to be Westerns. Of course, I love Western movies, but unlike most of your actors and Hollywood types who tend to be very, very left wing, most of them, most cowboy actors have been conservative. You look at Gene Autry, you look at Roy Rogers, Dale Evans, you look at Ronald Reagan, you look at John Wayne, Charlton Heston, you can go into Clint Walker. Matt Dillon, James R. Ness portrayed him, nearly all of these Western stars were conservative and Republican and many times Christian. And probably because the movies that they're in portray basic American and conservative values.
0: Well, let's uh, let's come back to this just the other side of our commercial break. Again, you are listening to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And we are again unpacking more of the First Amendment, specifically talking about uh, freedom of the press, as well as freedom of association, among other things. We'll be back right after this. that, we are back. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we're talking today about uh, more of the aspects of the First Amendment, particularly freedom of press. Let's pick up where we left off before.
1: We were talking about a liberal bias in the media as a whole, and that bias just seems to be more obvious today than it used to be. It used to be back in the 60s, 70s, that there was at least a pretense of objectivity. But even then, there could be a bias, not in the media personnel expressly saying, here's what we think and, and just expressing their opinions, so to speak, but there could be bias shown in what subjects you choose to cover, what subjects you choose to ignore, how you cover them, what witnesses or people you bring in to be interviewed about them and so on. And what questions you ask them, the tone of voice you use in which you ask those questions, the facial expression all of these things can indicate a bias, but it just seems like any semblance of objectivity is missing from most of our media today. And yet, despite this, as I said, I think we're glad that we do have a free press. And the First Amendment of the Constitution says that Congress shall make no law First of all, respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or infringing freedom of speech, or of the press. Those four words, or of the press, are all that the Constitution and all of its amendments say about the media, and yet they say a great deal. Now. Why do we need a clause that protects free speech and a clause that protects freedom of the press? Why do we have both? Well, there are two different views on that, and they're really important to see the distinction. One of them is the idea that the news media are a special class that have special protection, almost like you know the fourth state, as we sometimes call them, that they are given special protection, special status, that the rest of society doesn't have. That seems unlikely to most of us, but one Supreme Court justice in the 50s and 60s, Justice Potter Stewart, a fairly conservative justice most of the time, wrote in a very influential article with a simply title, Or of the Press, in the Hastings Law Journal, in 1975, he said that the purpose of the free press guarantee is to create a fourth institution outside the government as an additional check on the three official branches. He says, most of the provisions of the Bill of Rights protect specific liberties or specific rights of individuals, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, the right to counsel, the privilege against compulsory, self incrimination, to name a few. In contrast, the free press clause extends protection to an institution. The publishing business is, in short, the only organized private business that is given explicit constitutional protection. He says, it is tempting to suggest that freedom of the press means only that newspaper publishers are guaranteed freedom of expression. They are guaranteed that freedom to be sure, but, so are we all because of the free speech clause. If the free press guarantee meant no more than freedom of expression, it would be a constitutional redundancy. By including both guarantees in the First Amendment, the founders quite clearly recognized the distinction between the two. In other words, what Stewart is saying here is that we all have freedom of expression by the free speech clause, but freedom of the press is a heightened protection that is given to those in the media. Now, not everybody agrees with that. In fact, it's a minority view in the court today. But let me continue with what Stuart says. For centuries before our revolution, the press in England had been licensed, censored, and bedeviled by prosecutions for sedition. That's sort of like treason and libel. The British crown knew that a free press was not just a neutral vehicle for the balanced discussion of diverse ideas. Instead, the free press meant organized, expert scrutiny of government. The press was a conspiracy of the intellectuals with the courage of numbers. This formidable check on official power was what the British crown had feared and what the American founders decided to risk. In other words, Stuart is saying that The founding fathers knew that the press could be abusive, that they could be wrong, that they could be unfair, but having a free press was better than a government-controlled press, and so they were willing to risk that in order to have a check on government power. But not everyone agrees with that. In fact, well, I'll call that the Potter-Stewart view. I'm going to give a different view here. This is by Chief Justice Warren Berger, I'll call this simply the Burger View. And the Berger View is expressed in a Supreme Court decision that he wrote, First National Bank of Boston versus Bellotti, in 1978, just three years after Potter Stewart's article. And here's what Justice Berger says. In his opinion, he says: although certainty on this point is not possible, the history of the clause, that is the free press clause does not suggest that the authors contemplated a special or institutional privilege. Indeed, most pre-First Amendment commentators who employed the term freedom of speech with great frequency used it synonymously with freedom of the press. Those interpreting the press laws as extending protection only to or creating a special role for the institutional press must either a, assert such an intention on the part of the framers for which no supporting evidence is available, B, argue that events after 1791 somehow operated to constitutionalize this interpretation, or C, candidly acknowledge the absence of historical support and suggest that the intent of the framers is not important today. So, Berger says. No, the free press clause does not give special privileges to the press. Rather, it takes the free speech guarantee, which he says means narrow dissemination of ideas, you know, through a speech or a conversation, and extends it to broad dissemination of ideas. He goes on to say to conclude that the framers did not intend to limit the freedom of the press to one select is not necessarily to suggest that the Press Clause is redundant. The Speech Clause standing alone may be viewed as a protection of the liberty to express ideas and beliefs, while the Press Clause focuses specifically on the liberty to disseminate expression broadly and comprehends every sort of publication which affords a vehicle of interest opinion. Yet there is no fundamental distinction between expression and dissemination. The liberty encompassed by the press clause, although complementary to and a natural extension of speech clause liberty, merited special mention simply because it had been more often the object of official restraints. So what Berger was saying is that the press clause protects broad dissemination of ideas. The speech clause protects narrow dissemination of ideas. It would have been more simple and would have been more true maybe a couple hundred years ago to say the speech clause protects oral expression, the press clause protects written expression, and yet you could be on national television giving a broadcast heard by millions throughout the nation and millions more throughout the world and not have anything in writing at all, that would probably be called freedom of the press. The broadcast media is considered part of the press if you just write a letter to somebody that's probably going to be speech rather than press so it's raw dissemination versus narrow dissemination
0: okay on that note we will take a very quick commercial break you are listening to constitution classroom with colonel john eidsmo from the foundation for moral law here on the loving liberty radio network we'll be back right after this the Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eitzmoe from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as you have been discussing freedom of the press, I'm reminded of a very nice rule for thumb that uh, that I was introduced to about how to tell when you're, when you're reading or hearing or listening to journalism versus uh, someone who is telling you a story or engaging in narrative. And it comes down to journalism is supposed to be giving you facts without labels and without judgment. There's no language to steer you into a particular emotion or to appeal to virtue or fear. It's it's just basically, as you had said before, Joe Friday, here are the facts, and it's left to whoever the consumer is of that message to, to determine what it all means. And I, I'm just... I love that you're explaining how a free press works and how even though it's not perfect, for instance, I think of all the press conferences that uh, President Trump has, they seem pretty contentious. And while it may be painful for some people to watch those exchanges between him and, and what appears to be a pretty hostile press corps, that's probably healthy in the interest of uh, free speech and in the interest of, of facts being put out there that maybe otherwise wouldn't be.
1: Well, I would agree with that, and it's contentious on both sides. In defense of President Trump on this, I will simply say that the media and the opposition party has never really let him be a president. They've been on him from day one, in fact, well before day one. They were determined to destroy his presidency before he even took office. And so I regret that he has had to be so contentious so much of the time And maybe he's been more contentious than he needed to be, but they pretty well brought that on themselves by not really letting him be a president. I heard it said once that there was an incident one time when President Trump saw a drowning child. And anyway, he walked across the water, just walked across the water to rescue that child (laughs) and bring that child back to shore. Well, Fox News reported Trump walks on water. CNN reported Trump can't swim. (laughs) Another example of media bias was one time when Russia supposedly challenged the United States to an athletic contest. And anyway, the United States won the contest. So in the, the way that the Pravda reported it. Russians come in second in international athletic event. (laughs) U.S. comes in second to last.
0: (laughs) It's that whole idea of spin.
1: All of which is spin, all of which was objectively true. And the point is you can say things that are technically accurate and yet might give a totally misleading impression. I'm going to tell you something, and this is the absolute truth. I don't share this with a lot of people, but several years ago, I was stabbed by a man with a knife in downtown Montgomery. He was wearing a mask. He had a female accomplice. He stabbed me with a knife, and then he demanded money, which I paid him. Now, all of that is absolutely true. But I decided not to press charges because he was a surgeon and he was removing Uh a cyst from my chest. Uh Now, it is true. He was wearing a mask, a surgical mask. He had a female accomplice, his nurse. He was using a knife, a scalpel to be exact. He stabbed me in the chest to take a cyst out and he demanded money. He sent me a bill, which my insurance company paid. You can say things that is absolutely correct, but say it in such a way that it gives a very misleading perspective. Now, one of the things that I think has made the press a lot different today, too, is that some time ago, media personnel had this commitment, just the facts. Well, saying just the facts means that you believe there are such things as objective facts, bring in the new age and the postmodern mentality today that says there is no such thing as objective truth, and even words themselves, as we look to this silly idea today of language deconstruction, even words are mere constructs by the powers that be, and language itself, logic itself, is just a construct of Western society. Well, if you believe there is no such thing as absolute truth, then why should getting at the facts be your goal? And so we have people going into what they call advocacy journalism, which by the definition of journalism you gave earlier would be a contradiction in terms. But advocacy journalism, where our goal is not to report the facts. Our goal is not to give out information. Our goal is to change things. Our goal is to change the way people think and feel. And so we'll do that by selecting what stories to report on, what stories might have the best emotional impact, and we'll do that in the way we present them. Also, one thing else, you notice media people used to seem to think that it's not about me, it's about the issues and the personalities that we're dealing with. Increasingly today, among media personnel, they seem to think about me. And most of news today seems to hear a lot of it is about the news personalities themselves and their rivalries, their ambitions, and what they're doing and so on, all of which should be completely uninteresting. Talk about celebrities today. That Mallard Fillmore, that cartoon figure, once said that, what is a celebrity? Well, a celebrity is one who is well-known primarily for his well-knownness. And that's about it.
0: That makes sense. Not for anything
1: they've accomplished or any expertise that they might have. And we look for people to interview about events. We look to movie stars. We look to to pop singers, things like this, and think that somehow because they may have some expertise in acting or in music or another field like that, that they certainly have the same right to express themselves as anybody else does. But why should they be worth listening to? not because they have anything particularly worth saying. But let's get back for a moment to this perspective we were drawing earlier, this distinction between the Potter-Stewart view that the media is protected as an institution by the free press clause versus Warren Berger, Chief Justice Berger's view that the free press clause merely protects broad dissemination of ideas, whereas the free speech clause protects just narrow personal expression. Well, one area where that may come in and make a real difference is in the area of news sources and informants. You know, if a news person doesn't want to disclose a source, he would normally be free to say in his article that he writes or in his broadcast, I was told by an informant that is going to remain anonymous, and he has a right to do that, as we all do. We don't have to reveal our sources However, if we go to court and we're asked on the witness stand who told you that, we are obliged to tell. Media personnel sometimes have tried to say, we have a journalistic privilege that means we can keep our sources anonymous and the courts can't force us to disclose them. If you hold the Potter Stewart view, you would agree that the press has this special protection that the rest of us do not. If you hold the Warren Burger view, you would take the position that no, the press doesn't have any protection there. If they want to go to jail for not disclosing a source, that's their privilege. But the court can force them to reveal their sources just like they can force anybody else. And anyway, so far, the courts have generally held that there is no special newsman's privilege in this way. We have attorney-client privilege, we have clergy, penitent privilege, doctor, patient privilege, husband, wife privilege, but we don't have a newsman's informant privilege unless the laws of a particular jurisdiction expressly grant that privilege, and a few do, but the vast majority do not. But if you put the Stuart view of the press protection as an institution, you might be more likely to say freedom of the press includes that right. Majority of the courts say it does not.
0: So we've, we've given a pretty good coverage here, I think, to Freedom of the Press. In the final segment of the show coming up here uh, in just a few moments, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, freedom of assembly as well as freedom of association. In fact, I, I'm very anxious to hear uh, your thoughts, Colonel, on freedom of association, since that, that seems to be something that um, I'm not sure is, is well understood by a lot of people, perhaps even myself. Um, so it, it, can we, if we can tackle them in that order, does that sound good to you? Certainly. All right. We will take a very quick break then. Again, you're listening to the Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Idesmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Thanks again for joining us here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We'll be back right after these quick commercial messages. Once again, we welcome you back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eitzmull from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as we are talking more about the First Amendment to the Constitution, let's take a little bit of time to talk about freedom of assembly. And if we have some time, let's talk also about freedom of association.
1: Freedom of assembly is another right guaranteed in the First Amendment. As we read the First Amendment once again, originating the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now there's something very important in what we just read at the end there, and that is something that you didn't hear, but it was a comma. The right of the people peaceably to assemble, comma, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, that comma is all important here because there are some who would say that freedom of assembly exists for the purpose of petitioning the government. But I say, and I think this is the majority view, that freedom of assembly <coughs> is a freedom by itself. You can assemble for church. You can assemble for entertainment. You can assemble to do, <coughs> watch them You can assemble for any purpose. It doesn't have to be to petition. And the fact that there's a comma there between the freedom to assemble and the freedom to petition means that they are two separate rights. You could petition without ever assembling, you can assemble without ever petitioning. And that becomes quite relevant when we look to some of the issues that we've been dealing with in these last few weeks with the COVID-19 restrictions, restrictions on public gatherings, do these prohibit freedom of speech? Do they prohibit freedom of worship? Well, we think they do, especially if it's a church service. But do they prohibit the freedom to assemble? Well, there are a few who try to say no, because that only protects your right to assemble to petition the government. But the fact that there's that comma between these two rights tells me that no, the freedom to petition and the freedom to assemble are different. You can assemble without petitioning. You can petition without assembling. We think the word petition, when we hear that word today, the word to us usually connotes somebody with a sheet of paper that's got a demand on it and getting a bunch of signatures on it to hand in to the government official. You wouldn't have to assemble to get that petition, you could send it out by mail, by email. In fact, we see petitions that you can sign on online all the time without ever meeting with anybody else who joins you in the petition. You can assemble without petition. Assemble to worship, for example. Now, praying, well, in fact, the word petition, the prayer, and, a, and the word prayer and the word petition are sometimes used almost interchangeably. But At any rate, the point is, freedom to assemble is a right that exists by itself. It doesn't have to include petitioning. And freedom to petition is a right that exists by itself and doesn't have to be asserted in connection with the right to assemble. And that's important because when we're talking about restricting churches from meeting, thankfully, many of these restrictions are being eased now, I have had to have my services at my country church in vehicles outside the church, the cars together in a semicircle, and we preached on the steps of the church. That restriction was eased Monday morning, and now we can have our services inside once again, provided we do the proper <clears throat> social distancing. But anyway, we have made the argument that these kinds of restrictions on church services not only restrict free exercise of religion, they also restrict freedom of speech because preaching is a form of speech, singing is a form of speech, and they prohibit the right to freedom to assemble. And so putting those rights together many times gives them higher status than simply each right by itself.
0: So talk to us a little bit about freedom of association. This is one that uh, that I think has has sadly been uh, been chipped away at over the years in that, uh, you know, we see this where uh, well, your business, I think of the the baker in California or not California in Colorado, for instance, who was asked to to create a, a wedding cake for a same sex wedding and said, I can't do that. That runs against my beliefs. And he was told by the court there in Colorado. But you have to. He wasn't able to choose his freedom of association, at least in in that business setting, or so they said.
1: Exactly. And he would be asserting there, Mr. Baker there, or Mr. Phil, Jack Phillips there, the baker, in Master B's Cake Shop, he would be asserting there a free exercise of religion, forcing him to bake a cake to celebrate a gay wedding, violated his religious beliefs, freedom of speech, that cake is a form of artistic expression he said in fact the very fact that he named his bakery masterpiece cake shop suggests that he sees his cakes as work of art so there's expression but there's also association that he should have the right to decide who he wishes to associate with and if he doesn't want to associate with people engaged in gay weddings he should not have to do that here's one of the things i found interesting about that case and that whole issue is still up in the air of the courts right now, and with a more conservative court than before, the next time the Supreme Court addresses this issue, I think there's a good chance he will rule in favor of the freedom of expression of the bakery or the florist or whatever person we're talking about in a circumstance like this. But there in Colorado, shortly after this case came up, there was a Christian who... Pretended to be gay, homosexual, and went to a whole group of Muslim bakers, asking them to bake a cake to celebrate his same sex wedding. Every one of the Muslim bakers refused to do so. And yet, the state of Colorado refused to take action against any of them, they would take action only against Christians demonstrating their double standard in this area. But freedom of association is the right to associate with those we wish to associate with, and not associate with those with whom we do not choose to associate. And this has been thought in the past to be a fundamental right inherent in the First Amendment, even though association isn't expressly mentioned there, but with speech, with assembly, and with the basic liberty rights that we see in the fifth and fourteenth amendments, it's been thought to be an implied right. But lately it has been eroded. And we had a case of Roberts versus U.S. JCs, the Junior Chamber of Commerce, involving whether the J.C.s could restrict themselves to only women. I'm sorry, only men, rather than having to admit women members. And Anyway, the court in that case ruled that the JCs could not discriminate in that way. They would have to admit women members. And when the JCs said, we have a right of freedom of association, the court said, no, freedom of association applies only when you're talking about expressive association, that is, association that is for purpose of expressing and carrying out ideas, or association, that is, association that is very intimate, that is very, very close relationships. And they said, you and the jcs that's a business organization. This isn't intimate. It isn't expressive, primarily at least. And so they held that the freedom of association did not guarantee their right to be for men only, although it did guarantee the right of various, very fraternal organizations of women, like the PEO, for example, to have only women because they were a much more intimate organization. We came later with the Rutherford case involving the Boy Scouts of America. And the Boy Scouts insisted that our association is for express purposes and it is intimate. After all, our boys go out on campouts. What's more intimate than camping out in a tent with somebody for several days? That's a very intimate association and Scouts are engaged in expressive association as well. That is, we try to promote ideas. A scout is to be physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. And a scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. I was an Eagle Scout, and I still remember that. But at any rate, so scouting is to promote ideas. And a split court ruled that the scouts did exist for expressive purposes. And so they could restrict themselves to boys only. They could prohibit gays from joining, and they could prohibit atheists from joining.
0: Colonel, it sounds like we're going to have to pick this up the next time we get together in the Constitution classroom. Thank you so much for what you have shared with us today. And again, where can people find the Foundation for Moral Law website? Morallaw.org,
1: dot worg Google or anything close to that and you'll find us.